You're listening to 360 Degrees, the podcast from the University of Southampton's Development and Alumni Relations team with me, Emily Harrison. Now, some of you may remember back in the summer of 2018, there was a huge global news story about 12 Thai football players and their coach that got stuck in a cave in Thailand. This week on the podcast, our special guest is alum Chris Jewell, who played an instrumental part in rescuing the football team and their coach from that cave. He truly has an incredible story and it's so interesting hearing his insight into how those events unfolded. So I hope you enjoy. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come and do the podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself to everybody listening? Absolutely. So, uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris Jewell. I'm a caver, cave diver, and I was also part of the team of British cave divers and rescuers who successfully extracted 12 boys and their football coach from a flooded cave in Thailand in 2018. And honestly, it's really, I remember hearing about it in the news at the time, but it wasn't until I was doing some more research into it, preparing for this interview, after I knew that you were going to be coming on the podcast, that I was like really looking into all of these details. And it just was just unbelievable. Like, and obviously there's the film that's come out fairly recently that I watched that we can talk a bit about later. But it does seem like something out of a film. Like, you know, when you read it, it seems like something that you almost couldn't make up obviously there's so many questions I have to ask but the first one I just I'm so interested to know is what were your first thoughts when you heard about the situation and you were asked to be involved what was going through your mind uh you know I think the the big thing going on for me was the was the desire to help combined with the pressure in order to perform and do a good job you know, cave diving rescues are fairly rare, but the team that went out and deployed initially into Thailand has been called out a number of times. I'd not been, been called out before, I'd not been part of that team, but I'd been in the background supporting the team, uh, been in contact with them. And actually when they, when Rick and John first flew out to Thailand, you know, I was in contact with them quite a bit and I was doing my best to, to yeah, like I say, support them and, you know, kind of help from, from the UK. And part of that really was, the activity which I was doing in terms of answering questions from the media, building interview requests and so on, um, but then also trying to offer practical assistance when they were asking for bits of equipment or things to be, be organised in the UK. We were trying to think about how we'd do that as well. But the whole way through that process, you know, I, I was aware that if they needed additional divers, then it would most likely next be myself and Jason Mallinson um, going out. And that, you know, that was the case. Jason and I went out next. And, you know, when they reached out to me and say, yeah, we do want you and Jason, yeah, I was very aware that this had become an extremely high-profile rescue uh, in terms of the number of people looking at it, an extremely complex and difficult scenario, difficult situation, where the boys were trapped a long way uh, into a cave in a, in a really you know, unprecedented scenario in terms of that many people trapped that far into a cave. No easy way to bring them out, no obvious solutions presented themselves at the time. You know, And at the same time, I had to make sure that I did the job or I, I, yeah, I did the best that I could do to really kind of live up to the expectations of the people that were prepared to put me forward as, as someone who could who could help, you know. And I trusted Rick and John when they made the recommendation and said, yeah, come out, we think you can be useful, Chris. I, you know, tr- trusted them, but I absolutely want to make sure I lived up to their expectations. 
Yeah, and that's, I imagine, you know, you mentioned there, obviously, so much pressure. And I know that you said in a, a previous interview with our Hartley News about, you know, it's so important to help yourself through that situation is just to detach emotionally and try and stay calm in that situation but how do you do that with something of that magnitude like you say such high profile and with so many lives at stake how do you how are you able to detach emotionally from that situation yeah good question I mean I think I was able to detach emotionally from the mission or at least from the impact of the of the fact they were you know young lives at stake right you know it was very hard to be detached from the media scrutiny, it's very hard to be detached from the importance of this mission, but it helped to sort of not think about, you know, the fact that these were young lives. You know, we were able to focus on it being a mission. We focused on it actually to bringing out a, almost a, a package. While the boys was, you know, a huge step up in terms of emotional responsibility, but actually to not think about the impact of the fact that was a living, breathing human being in our arms and really just to focus on it being a mission and, you know, focus on the technicalities of the mission rather than the fact, like I say, you know, these were young lives in our arms. Yeah, of course. And obviously so many more questions about that situation and the impact after. But first, I just kind of wanted to dial back a little bit to how you first got involved in caving. I know I've seen you say before it's something that you got involved with at university. Was that the first time that you'd ever been involved in caving and cave diving or did you have a bit of experience before? Was it totally new? Yeah, so my route into caving and, and then cave diving did start at university. I joined the Southampton University Caving Club, you know, very good, very active caving club. It gave me a fantastic opportunity to visit caves all over the UK and then actually go abroad and take part in some caving expeditions. And all that really came through the University Caving Club that's you know, been hugely formative um, for the rest of my life. So you know, massive gratitude really to everybody involved in that club and the the people there that took me under their wing and started me started me caving so that gave me the exposure to caving um actually at the same time i'd been part of the uh, uotc uh, in southampton and the uotc had provided me with the opportunity to learn to dive so you know actually for a while i kept these two sports separately i did a little bit with the university diving club as well but i ran those kind of kept those two sports separate and, and kind of you know did them independently for for a few years uh, and it was only later that i actually combined them um, when i felt that my diving was at diving and caving was both such a standard that, that I could do something good there and you know and then that was a big you know a big move really and then I moved into the world of cave diving and that became my main focus for, for many years. Um, what do you think are the attributes someone needs to have to be successful at cave diving you know is it something that you know you're just naturally good at or is it something that can be taught? Yeah so I think you've got s- several things interacting here you've got Sort of technical skills or, or and you've got motor skills I suppose that's right, right? so you've got motor skills first you know, the ability to perform certain actions and activities particularly underwater you know so you're able to you know move things around and, and do things underwater you've got the motor skills and the coordination if you like to kind of use the equipment and cope with that environment you've then got the uh, mental ability to deal with what is basically a technical sport so yes you know you need to be kind of uh, physically able to do the sport they need the the kind of you know, say mental ability to do the calculations in terms of tracking gas consumption and do your kind of safety margin calculations the ability to think through problems and solve problems in this in this very technical sport so there's a lot of uh, yeah a lot of, it's quite a cerebral sport in that respect so definitely a, a thought-provoking sport and then you know you obviously also need Overlaid on top of that, the ability to 
keep calm under pressure and to you know to very much take things in your stride so you need a level of i suppose resilience i think is is, is important you know you can go on training courses or, or you know diving courses or complete diving classes uh, that give you the diving skills to dive in a cave or you'll be taught the motor skills of uh, you know, and techniques of, um, you know, how to move through the cave. Uh, you'll be taught about the equipment to use. You'll be taught about gas consumption and calculating margins and, and, and so on. So all of that can be taught. You know, you need to have an aptitude to absorb that kind of kind of knowledge. Um, I guess the thing which can't be taught is, uh, you know, the ability to, to problem solve um, and the ability to be resilient. And those are, I suppose, personality traits. I'm not saying they can't be developed, of course. You know, you can develop some of those personality traits in yourself, some of those behaviours um, to do with your outlook. And But yeah, you're not going to get those sorts of things in a, in a kind of a formal class, you know. And I would say, you know, then the Cave Diving Group, which is the organisation I'm part of in the UK, you know, is very good at innovating. It's very good at, you know, problem solving. And the cave diving we do in the UK typically involves caving first. <clears throat> so you've got the ability to you know, pick up your diving kit, carry it down a cave and then and then put it on. So the ability to move that heavy diving equipment through a cave. So being physically strong and able is is also an important part to, to kind of be a cave diver son in the UK. And I'm thinking that this is something that for you was a hobby. It's not your job. You know, you you volunteer as part of this association. So it wasn't something that you're doing day in, day out as a job. It's something that comes out of passion, right? Exactly as you say, you know, uh, caving cave diving is a hobby. Or, you know, certainly was was and and yeah, I guess it is really. It's not a certainly not a career. You know, I do enjoy cave and cave diving, uh, it, and that's transitioned into this this kind of level of um, yeah, I suppose obsession, sort of obsessive hobby uh, that I do all the time. You know, it sits alongside quite nicely in my professional career. Um, I work in IT, work for a, for a software company, and actually I find the two perfectly compatible. Um, and sometimes it's nice to have a you know a kind of a daily job that's quite different from from what I do at the weekends. You know, go and get go and kind of crawl around in a muddy muddy hole at weekends and then you know get to sit uh, in front of a computer during the day in the week so I find both of those quite a good relief to the other in that in that respect a good balance. Um, but yeah you know cave and cave diving is a, a good balance exactly um, but yeah cave and cave diving this kind of crazy hobby that's given me the opportunity to do all sorts of interesting things and then yeah you know led on to be part of this rescue team in Thailand yeah of course so going back to that that rescue mission like we said, you're a group of volunteers that are, are passionate about about doing it. There was very sadly a, a, a trained Navy SEAL diver who died during that whole sequence of events from asphyxiation during the dive. So does it change your the situation and your frame of mind once you're out there knowing, obviously you know the risks going into it, but then you're very obviously confronted with, you know, someone, someone dying. Like, does that change the situation? It, it didn't change my... The way in which I was approaching the situation, as you as you rightly say, you know, I already had a strong and good understanding of the level of risk involved. So Sam and Gunan's death uh, in that respect didn't kind of make me more aware of that risk. I, I think the risk was, you know, the risk was there. It did change the effect, uh, did change the way in which the, the cave was understood and the risk perhaps was understood by people who weren't regular cave divers out there. So the Tiny Navy Seals, fantastic, incredible divers you know, wonderful you know, effort that they put into this rescue and all the all the risks that they were prepared to, to manage and undertake, you know, absolutely incredible. But of course they weren't cave divers, you know. Yeah. And I think, you know, the get the death of Saman Gunan, retired Navy SEAL, underlined the, the level of risk involved in this and reminded everybody just how dangerous this was. You know, there was a, you know, as you say, 
trained where ex or retired you know navy seal that lost their life and that reminded everybody that this was a serious environment where you know trained highly experienced divers could get into difficulty so i think it was a key point in the rescue in the sense that it you know reminded everybody of that it meant that the british team of cave divers you know achieved a certain level of primacy in terms of our plans and ideas kind of moving forward in terms of the, the options that were being considered and discussed. But, you know, personally for me, it, it was absolutely tragic. But at that time, I was still focused on getting the mission done. And, you know, I didn't consider it any more risky or any less, clearly, after Salman's death. And was it before or after his death that the plan was made to sedate the boys whilst you were diving them from one spot to the other? The idea of sedating the boys had already been being discussed even before Salman's death. I think we already knew it was very, very difficult to bring the boys out any other way, bring them out fully conscious. And I think really that conclusion had been reached much earlier before I'd arrived on site in Thailand when Rick and John rescued two water pump workers through a very short underwater fluid section of the cave. And those adults, the, the water pump workers were adults, that Rick and John you know, dragged out of that section of the cave very nearly panicked and, and, you know, had real problems getting them there. And they only dived them out through, like I say, a very short section. So that reminded everybody, again, that there was no way that, you know, just how difficult this was and, and therefore there was no way you could bring the boys out through hundreds and hundreds of metres of flooded caves, much smaller, more difficult, awkward spaces to manoeuvre them through if they were, you know, if they were conscious. So, yeah, the, the, the idea of sedation was definitely on the table after that. And then that was continued to be explored. And by the time I arrived in Thailand, there were some, some firmer ideas about that. Um, and actually, Dr. Harris, Richard Harris, arrived, you know, I think about 24, maybe 12, 24 hours after, you know, and obviously began to be part of the plan to sedate the boys. And like you say, this is something that had never happened before, you know, a rescue even off this scale, let alone, you know, the way that it ended up unfolding. So, how do you prepare yourself mentally when you know that that's the plan and this is what you've got to do? Like, can, can you prepare yourself mentally from that? Was it different once you were doing the dives? Was it different to what you had anticipated or about the same? Yeah, you know, one of the things we do a lot in cave diving is visualisation. So visualising the situation you're about to go into, visualising the dive that you're going to do, visualising how you're going to move in the water, you know, how you're going to move through a, a space, uh, you know, in the case of maybe a small hole that you've got to get through and, and where you've got to put your arms, how, where you're going to hold the dive line, how you're going to hold the buoy and, and all those bits. So we spent, I, I certainly spent a, a long time visualising exactly what I was going to do and exactly how I was going to move through through that, you know, effectively an underwater maze I was swimming that way. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, over a series of days I'd build up a, a very clear picture in my mind about exactly what that underwater cave system looked like. And, you know, I could, have met, I could you know, sit there and think, right, I've done that section. Now what's coming next is a left-hand turn. Then after that, I'll be going up. And then down there's that flat bit there. There's gravel on the floor. Then I'll turn to the right. And I, you know, I could actually you know, remember map those it out in your head. Yeah, exactly. Map out in, in my head. So that visualization is important. I was doing that, you know, beforehand and almost, you know, during the dive, you're constantly visualizing what's coming up and how you're going to cope with it. And I say that's one of the, most important techniques you know that you can use to prepare yourself for a, for a difficult situation for or for a stressful situation and how many times did you have to do the dive back and forth and how long did that roughly sort of take you 
So I went in and out of the cave four times. I first went to the cave when I, when I first arrived along with Jason because we hadn't seen the cave at that point. We hadn't dived to the end. We hadn't been for the boys who were. And it was important for us to do the dive to kind of, you know, so we could understand the layout of the cave and difficulties involved so we could be part of that, that kind of planning process. At the same time, when we did so, we took in some supplies to the boys, so that was useful as well. And we took some uh, air quality measurements in the in the chamber as well, which was, again, you know, useful in terms of informing the plan that was then reached. After that, it was then three trips in and out of the cave with the boys. So, you know, going in, taking one of the boys uh, who'd been sedated by the doctor and swimming out of the cave. And so I say we did that um, you know, three consecutive days. Uh, you know, bringing out the boys each day, myself, Jason, uh, Rick and John, uh, each bring out one boy uh, on each of the days, that's the 12, you know, get, get 12 of the boys uh, coming out of the cave. And then finally, the, the coach uh, in the football team, uh, then also being brought out um, on the final day, thanks to Jim Warney, then also being part of the, uh, the kind of rescue team in terms of steering the boys and also actually doing the diving and, uh, and bringing them out underwater. And like I mentioned earlier, there's been a film released on Amazon Prime this year called 13 Lives, which I watched yesterday and was just, you can read about something and imagine what it's like, but then actually to see it visually, obviously it's a film and, and not the real thing, but it was just so overwhelming and I would really encourage people to go and watch it if you haven't, but for you, obviously your character's played by Tom, your character, you as a person, <laughs> played by Tom Bateman, like what, yeah. I don't know, in the film, like What's that like for you to then see, you know, that whole series of events that you've gone through put into a film? Yeah, so, so, you know, it was a really interesting process. So we were able to collaborate with the director, with Ron Howard, as well as with the actors playing ourselves, you know, some exposure to, to, to both of those, and a you know, chance to collaborate there. So, so that was great. You know, when we came back from, from Thailand, you know, way back just after it, you know, just after it all happened, you know, conversations, with the directors, but you know, started. I mean, you know, it's cr- crazy to come back after being part of something so monumental, to come back to in, you know inboxes and telephone calls, you know, ch- chasing you know, inboxes full and telephone calls, kind of chasing us for participation in projects or you know stories and j- articles, and then you know, and then films. Obviously, you know, we, we did a bunch of sort of immediate immediate things in terms of newspaper articles and TV appearances or whatever, you know, and then it was the, the films which have taken longer to come out. So the media uh, industry is very quick to react to these sorts of things when they can see a good story, you know, they will very, very quickly, you know, put in place uh, plans to kind of convert those stories to, to film. And I mean, it's only been really a handful of years since the, the rescue that this story has now been turned into, a to, you know, to, to several films, as well as the MGM 13 Lives, that you mentioned there's of course the National Geographic documentary called The Rescue which we also participated with as well as a series of other you know kind of tv and, and film productions you know telling the story so it's a you know it's a story I guess which captures everyone's imaginations it's a story that you know directors and you know filmmakers want to tell and they feel it's a you know exciting story with lots and lots of aspects to it and I think that's absolutely right so yeah it was a real pleasure to be able to you know partner with high quality producers and high quality directors to, to bring the story to, to life. And it was very important to us that, you know, the story that was told was a high quality production, that it was, you know, as accurate as was reasonable to what really happened on the ground. You know, we had the opportunity to tell our own stories, you know, in the National Geographic documentary, because of course we participate and we're, you know, we're being interviewed. So that's our own words. So that's great. You know, and then we had to be reasonably accepting that, you know, 
when Hollywood kind of has their version of the story, you know, they might uh, adjust things or twist things slightly because they understood that that would make a more compelling tale for audiences. But I think at the same time, you know, it's still a, a pretty accurate and pretty realistic portrayal of what it was like out there. And, you know, with you know, excellent actors playing all of us, you know, I think you get some of the power and emotion um, of the moments as well, which is important. Definitely. And it's so interesting to say because one of my questions was going to be how accurate do you think that that film is? Because obviously, like you say, Hollywood has a tendency to dramatise real life events, although I really don't feel like it needed any dramatisation. Like I said, I, I obviously knew how it ended because I remember the news story, but my heart was in my mouth watching it. It's in, It's funny because actually it's really quick into the film. I think it, it's about 15 minutes in that, you know, the boys get stuck, like you say, Rick and John are flown out. And so then you think, there's still like two hours of this film left. Like, like how, and then it's all the intricacies of the rescue mission and all the components coming together that were, that were so interesting. So it's all the, all the little details that you, you probably don't, you know, think about when you hear that story. It's, it's really interesting to watch it be played out. So it's good to know that you feel like it was a fair reflection of the situation. My final question is, obviously, we've spoken obviously a bit about the media, but in terms of you personally, after you came back from Thailand, how has that impacted you or has it impacted you in any way? I don't know if it's, you know, did it change the way that you look at cave diving? Did you take a break from it for a little bit or did it just, you know, spur you on with your passion? You know, how did that impact you? Yeah, actually, in cave diving has certainly not waned for me at all in terms of a passion if, if anything you know when I came back from Thailand you know I was keen to carry on cave diving as, as ever and actually interestingly you know most of the others I think all the others in the team felt the same really that actually it gave everyone more enthusiasm for caving cave diving you know and, and we've done lots of good good things since then so I still absolutely love caving cave diving I mean it's still a major passion for me uh, you know I was away earlier this year on a number of expeditions you know, doing my caving and, and diving but you know it's now a few years ago the story and you know the world moves on as it were so you know I get to come and do presentations I get to do you know podcasts or, or you know and we obviously had the, the films um, you know this year and last which kind of bring the story up again so every time there's something which brings the story up again you know we get reimmersed in it and we talk about it and, and you know read of some of those moments you know and I'll be talking about it sort of ne- next week and some presentations and so on so it, it happens quite a bit but but when it doesn't you know my, my life is you know when, when I'm not you know presenting about it or you know or talking to people about it you know my life goes back to normal right so you know I'm, I'm back at work doing doing the day job which I enjoy you know I'm at home doing the chores and you know doing the decorating and that is so we're getting ready to move house you know all those things are just normal daily things that are just part of your life uh you know and this story is now I suppose a bit more of a, of a backdrop to all of that rather than something that's that kind of you know overshadows it all so you know it's a great backstory to have it's a story like I say I enjoy telling whenever you know people ask me questions I'm always happy to talk about it but no it certainly doesn't dictate my life so it doesn't overshadow it Thank you so much for taking the time. Genuinely so full of admiration. Just watching the the film and the documentary, it was just really quite an incredible thing to see. I was like, I'm going to talk to that guy tomorrow, which is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it's just, like I say, so unbelievable. So thank you so much for sharing your story with me and everybody listening. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm glad it's gone well. And thank you very much. (laughs) 
thank you so much again to Chris for coming on to this week's episode of the podcast. I so, so enjoyed that interview. It was so interesting hearing him talk about how everything unfolded and how you cope in a situation like that. And obviously it had a happy ending, which you know, it was great to hear. And I definitely would recommend those films that I mentioned on Amazon Prime, Saving 13 Lives. And there's also the documentary and Netflix series as well, if you fancy it. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next month for a new episode.